Okay, did everyone get a handout? Because, um, oh, are they all gone from there? Um, because I think we're going to go through a lot of different things, but it's all one story. So um, hopefully we'll be able to do that. Um, I think this is a passage that really does cause a lot of discussion. So hopefully, hopefully this will tie some of the loose ends together. I don't know. Um, okay. Is it on mute? No. No, you're good. Okay. 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 Okay, so let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you that your word causes us to examine where our hearts are. Thank you that your word causes us to dig deep to understand. Thank you for that. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for generations of people who have struggled with these things. And thank you for the truth that you have to reveal to us. Lord, would you be with me if I should say anything that is unworthy of you, that does not adorn the gospel, please erase it from the minds of these women. And Lord, may we come out of here today loving you more. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so... Johnny Erickson Tata wrote this about the book of Hebrews. She said, Hebrews is the Bible commenting on itself. Hebrews is like a built-in, spirit-inspired owner's manual. It's like a heaven-sent dictionary or commentary explaining just where and why the Savior is spoken of here, there, and everywhere throughout the timeless pages of the Word of God. I love that. And I think our, our lesson today is a supreme example of what Johnny Erickson Tata is saying. Because what we are going to find is that in this very lesson, we have Jesus talked about here, there, and everywhere. So, in our lesson today, we look back to Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is attributed to David... And that psalm is looking back to the wanderings in the Exodus generation and as they walked in the wilderness. And yet, the author of Hebrews is using that same psalm for teaching the recipients of his letter. So, we have David writing the psalm to teach people, and we have him using the Exodus generation, and then we have the author of Hebrews using Psalm 95 to teach his Recipients, and then we are using that same psalm for our own teaching. I think that's extremely significant. I think it's, it's very important. I think we learn a couple of very important things. And the first one is, it comes right away in verse 7 of chapter 3, because it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So, I mean, we know this, but what that's telling us is that we can learn from this that it's meant for us, that it's meant for us this morning sitting in these chairs because this is a timeless truth, because it's from the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit used David to write it, but it's still applicable in our lives. But this thing teaches us something far more even than that because it teaches us that there are no surprises with God. There are not two ways to enter God's rest, God's plan from the beginning has been centered on his son. Jesus Christ and all of scripture 
has always been about him. It has always been moving forward to the ending that God has known from all eternity. No matter what is happening in the lives of God's people, whether it's God's people wandering in the wilderness of the Sinai Desert, or whether it is God's people facing assaults upon the kingdom of God during David's time, or whether it is us facing, or whether it is the people facing persecution in, for, in the first century, or whether it is about us living in an ever-increasingly godless time of today, these things speak to us. And God's answer has always been the same. It has always been Jesus. Whether it's through types and shadows and promises, or whether it is looking in faith to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done, the seed was planted long ago. It was planned back in eternity, but the seed was planted long ago, right after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, when God was speaking the curses and he spoke to the serpent of old, and what did he say? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And always, my friends, that same seed has been the way that God is bringing things to us. You see, when the people first heard that, when Adam and Eve first heard that, they didn't know how big that promise was. But that promise grew and grew and grew throughout generations. But it was always Jesus. And it is always Jesus who is calling us to rest. For all God's people in every time, it's always Jesus. And the rest that we have, the promise of the rest, is always in him now, and it is in him later. The truth that is before us is that we get the full realization of Jesus now, and our final rest is coming. We all, however, in getting there, and this is important, must travel through the wilderness. All of God's people must travel through the wilderness. And here's the question that we're going to try to answer today is, what will your wilderness journey teach you? What are you learning right now in your wilderness journey? So let's unfold this together. If we use Psalm 95 as a template for what we're doing, we're going to be able to draw some very important teachings for the lives of God's people. So, um, and and for our, for our own lives, where does Psalm 95 start? You talked about this, I'm sure, in your small groups. It starts with worship. And this, is, this sets the paradigm for us. We've got to have this. This is what we need. How does that psalm begin? Well, it begins with a song of praise. It says, it tells us to have gladness of heart. It begins with a rehearsal of who God is and what he has done. He is the creator God, and he is the great king over all the kings. It tells us what our response to him should be. It should be humble adoration. It should be wonder. It should be obedience. It should be worship. It calls us to acknowledge the great and glorious privilege that we have because we are the people that God has chosen as the sheep of his pasture. It's a wonderful part of the template that we need to have as we walk through this wilderness journey. 
Worship means that we take our proper place. It means that we give God the glory he deserves. It means that we trust his love and his purposes, and we say, yes, Lord, even when it's hard. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. My friends, we need this every day. We need to understand who God is and what he is calling us to and what his purpose is. Worship and humble adoration and bowing before our great God, because worship keeps us with our eyes where they are always meant to be on Jesus. For he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture. That's how that psalm begins. And then we come to this warning. We come to the portion that links every generation together today. It jumps off the page, doesn't it? It comes off our tongue as the here and now. It is every person's present tense today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through David, and he is calling every generation, wake up, pay attention. And we're giving the warning, given the warning, don't be like the Exodus generation who indeed did harden their hearts. My friends, here's the thing. Their today is over. But David, during his lifetime, was calling his people, don't be like them. And now their today is over. And the author of Hebrews was using this same psalm and he was saying, don't be like them. And now their today is over. And today we are using that same psalm, but our today still stands. So it is important. The urgency is here. We must understand what was going on as the Exodus generation wandered in the wilderness because we need to know what do we need to avoid. So if you look at your um, handout, we're going to go through this, uh, hopefully, quickly. We're going to look at the Exodus generation. And so we'll do that first. And let me just say, we could spend a long time here, and I'm going to try to make this as brief as I can. But we're going to, what I'm going to do is David is calling us to avoid something. And what does he do? Well, David refers to two earth-shattering incidents in the lives of the Israelites who have been led out of Egypt, and they are walking in the wilderness wanderings. Now, I want to remind you who these people are. You know this, but we've got to keep this before us. These are the very same people who not only saw God's judgment coming down in the form of the plagues upon every god of Egypt, and finally upon Pharaoh himself, And then these are the same people who came out of Egypt and they saw the parting of the Red Sea. And they walked through the Red Sea on dry land and then they saw the same sea that that meant salvation for them come down in judgment upon Pharaoh and his army. That's who these people are. And then what happens? They enter the wilderness. And they went three days, it says, and they found no water. 
This is the first place they came to. This is not one referred to by David. And when they came to that water, it was bitter, and the people grumbled against Moses. And God was patient with them, and he told Moses, there's a tree, throw it in the water, and the water became, uh, and the uh, bitter water became sweet. Okay, so then they go on to the next place. They complained again. This time they, they grumbled because there was no food. I mean, that's pretty important. But they grumbled, and this time they said something a little stronger. They complained that in Egypt they had plenty of food. And then they accused Moses that he had brought them out of Egypt to kill them with hunger. And what did God do? Well, God was patient with them, and he gave them manna from heaven. But this time he gave them rules about how they were to gather the manna and, and how, what they were to see from that. And they gave them, and he gave them this test, but the people disobeyed. So already before we get to either of the things that, that David was referring to, we see we are beginning to see a pattern. Things don't go their way. They grumble. They complain. Now comes the first incident that David refers to. It's in Psalm 95. And it says they came and they camped. I don't know how to pronounce this. Rephidim. I don't know if that's right. But anyway, they came and they, count, and they camped there. And what did they find? There was no water there. So they did what? They quarreled with Moses. Now I need to tell you that word quarreled is very important. Here's what's happened. Moses has led them to this place purposely because God told him to lead them to this place. So their quarrel isn't with Moses, it's with God. Now Moses is serving as a mediator. This is a type of Christ, but he's serving as a mediator there. And he's mediating between God and the people. And so all of a sudden, the people demand, you know what their demand was? It wasn't, why don't we have water? Oh, we're starving. We're dying for water. It was, give us water. That's what they demanded. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, here's the interesting thing about that. When we read in Exodus, we read that God brought them into the wilderness to test them. The wilderness is always a place of testing. And the wilderness in Scripture is meant to be part of our ongoing spiritual training. But here, in this Exodus part, we have the people putting God to the test. In fact... What they are doing is so astonishing, they are calling for a trial. They, this is kind of a covenant lawsuit. They are bringing a charge against God, they, and they are threatening. And they are accusing God of breaking his covenant. That's essentially what they're doing. They want to bring God to justice. Now, what happens here? Again, we're looking at shadows and types here. We're looking at things here. But what is amazing that God begins to show here is really astonishing. What happens is that God submits himself to judgment. Now, we have to be clear. He didn't submit himself and say, okay, I'm guilty, you can punish me. That's not what he was doing. He took the judgment that should have fallen on them. And here's how we know. Because God told Moses that he would stand on the rock and Moses was to strike the rock. And he was to use the staff that had been used to bring judgment 
in the plagues of Israel, of in Egypt. My friends, he didn't ask Moses to stand there because Moses couldn't atone for their sins. God stood on that rock, and Moses struck the rock with the rod of judgment. And what happened next? Well, water flowed out of the rock, abundant water. Not a little water, but enough for all of those people, enough to provide. And the text tells us, you know what the people did then? They said, well, is God going to be with us or not? God was among the people, but they weren't paying any attention. He had showed his presence by bringing water from the rock. He showed much more than that. But the people did not see the miracle even of the water. All they wanted was the water. They didn't see the miracle of it all. They didn't own their own guilt of unbelief and rebellion. They just wanted water. And the passage tells us that Moses called the name of that place Masa, which means testing, and Mara, which means quarreling or rebellion. That's the first one. The second one comes in in Numbers 14. This will be a lot quicker. The people are at the edge of the promised land. It's about two years after the crossing of the Red Sea. And it's a little more than two years, but just a little beyond that. And they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they're right on the edge of the promised land that God promised them to have. And all of us, they've sent the spies of Israel in to check out the land. And they come back, and they come back with this report, and they say it's a good and bountiful land. And they bring back grapes and, and vegetables, and they show them that it's a flourishing land. But here's what else they say. But it's full of giants. And, and it's full of our enemies. And it has cities surrounded by strong walls. And they say, we can't go in there. We can't do this. We can't defeat those enemies. And all that Caleb and Joshua say, we cannot enter this land. And Caleb and Joshua plead for the people to trust the Lord. This is the same Lord who has brought them out of Egypt. They have seen miracle after miracle, but they will not listen. And so, here's what happens. And as one commentator writes, he says, The people desired to reverse the exodus. This is how serious this is and return to the land of Egypt. At the very cusp of reaching the climax of Exodus, they turn their hearts back to Egypt. And this is what they say, let's choose a leader to take us back to Egypt. It's astonishing. And so here's what David has done. He's given us those two bookends. It is just surely after they've entered the wilderness, and it's just before they are to enter the promised land, And they want to go back to Egypt. They were meant to enter the promised land, but they would not. They would not trust the Lord to defeat their enemies. They did not trust his promises. They did not put their faith in him. Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews is quoting, is not saying here that these were the only two things that these people did. It was time after time, but these were the two main things. These were the bookends. Between those two moments, there were many others. There was the golden calf. 
It kept on and on and on. You see, all of that happened within two and a half years after being delivered from the bondage in Egypt. And now it would continue for 37 more years of wandering because our passage says that God loathed that generation because he said they are a people who always go astray in their hearts. And here's what else he says. They did not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, the, the next question we want to ask ourselves, well, okay, so the author of Hebrews is, is writing about this. What did the Exodus generation and the recipients of the letter of Hebrews have in common? What, what did they have in common? What was the problem that the Exodus generation and the recipients, we could find similarities between? Well, I think the first thing we can see is things were hard for them. They had entered the wilderness and things were hard for them. The people of Exodus were brought into the wilderness and they immediately faced hardship. These were big hardships. They didn't have water. They didn't have food. The people spoken of in Hebrews became Christians in what was going on in their lives. They were being persecuted. It was really hard for them. They, they were losing their businesses. They were losing their homes. They were facing danger. Life wasn't the way they imagined it would be. And so little by little, they began to think about their old lives. And those old lives didn't seem so bad. The Exodus generation thought about the abundance of food and water they had in Egypt. The Hebrews thought about how when they were in Judaism, they didn't face persecution. Now, it may seem like a strange comparison to say going back to Judaism is the same as going back to Egypt, but that's the point. That's the point that the author wants us to see. That's how serious it is. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is serious. You can't go back. What does the author say? He says, take care, brothers, lest there be an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And the author is saying the same thing. You can't go back. You can't go back, he's saying, to those old, invisible institutions, those things that were shadows and types, those things that were for a time, but now they're obsolete. You can't go back to Judaism. You have the real thing. You are refusing the answer, the answer that we have always been waiting for and looking for, the one that the shadows and types was pointing to. He's here. He's the one who is greater than the angels. He's the one who is the heir of all things. He's the one through whom God created the world. He's the one who is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. He's the one who is sitting at God's right hand. This is the one that is so much greater than Moses. Why are you looking to that? He is counted as worthy of much more glory than Moses, for he is the builder of the house, and he's faithful, always faithful, over all of God's house. You can't turn away from the living God. You can't let your heart grow hard. You can't let your heart end up in unbelief. That's what's going on. Now, I wish we could stop there and just shake our heads and say, oh, those people. <coughs> They're just so rebellious. <coughs> but obviously, it points to us too. 
And so we must ask, what are we to learn? What is the state of our hearts? Are we holding fast to our confidence? Are we boasting in our hope? What does that mean? I know this passage is really troubling for people who, who know what our promises are because it comes face to face with it, doesn't it? We see these two things looking at each other and we want to know what's going on. Because it comes face to face with the thing that tells us that we are saved by grace and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. It tells us these are the promises that says no one is able to snap us, snatch us out of his hands. And yet here it is in God's word. So what is it we are to see? Here's one very important thing. We have to understand what the wilderness is. This is just so important. The wilderness is this. It is the time after we have come to salvation in Jesus Christ and have been delivered from the bondage to our sin, and we are there on our journey to the land of promise, to our final rest. But before we get there, we must journey through the wilderness. The wilderness is this present life. Now, we need to understand this because the wilderness is a time of testing. It's a time when our hearts are revealed. The wilderness reveals, manifests what's in our hearts. What do you expect in the wilderness? What do you expect today? We must expect that the wilderness journey will bring hardships because the purpose is a time of testing. It will bring sorrows. This world will hold up its delicacies to us, its shining, glittering things, and our hearts will be revealed. This is not our place of rest right now. It's our place of testing and training and growing. And yes, here we're going to find temptations and battle. Now, I have to say this. The journey will surely show that not everyone who said they are a believer will pass the test. The wilderness journey will show those who do not really know Jesus. That's what the wilderness is going to show. Those who demand and put Jesus to the test, do this, fix that. As one commentator wrote, if you want the gifts while having no interest in the giver, you will not persevere through the trials of this life. So we come to the warning. Don't give up yet. We come to the warning and it says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. This is a call for action. This is a call to prepare your minds and hearts to be alert. Take care each day. Today, take care. What is a hardened heart? Well, it's one that's not pliable. It's one that through lack of exercise has hardened over. It's one where who's, a hardened heart is where God's word doesn't penetrate. It just, you hear God's word and it just doesn't take root. It just doesn't mean anything. A hardened heart doesn't happen immediately. It happens little by little. 
The Israelites showed us hardened hearts, didn't they? They complained and they demanded and they accused God. They accused God of not loving them. They, they accused him of seeking their harm. You see, when we are in the wilderness, here's what we have to remember. Hard times will come. We aren't told anything different than that ever. But we are told this. His promises and his purposes are sure. We must walk by faith, people, and not by sight. We must hold on to those promises because hard times are going to come. In the quote from Psalm 95, it says, They went astray in their hearts because they have not known my ways. They did not know who God was. My friends, I've seen this happen in my own life. I have someone in my life that has shaken my world, someone who began began well, began well in this journey, or seemed to. But somewhere there was a sin in this person's heart, and it grew, and he wouldn't let it go. And the sin became more important to him than Jesus. It's sad. My hope is this. This is my hope. It is still today. My hope is that this person's heart is not a hard heart. That he has not turned forever away from the living God. That his unbelief is not final. My hope is that he really did have faith in Jesus. And that repentance will come. But the wilderness will show what is in his heart. The cause of all of the warnings in this chapter underlying is unbelief. It means turning from the living God. It means turning from Jesus. And you see, my friends, here it is. This is where we've been working to. That's the point. The wilderness is to show us our hearts. Yes, it's a time of testing. Yes, the wilderness is meant to deepen our faith. Will we stumble? Yes. We will stumble in the wilderness. Will I need help when the torrents of trouble come my way? Yes, I will need help. And the author of Hebrews tells us we need each other every day. We need to carry one another's burdens. We need to be there when someone's struggling. We need to speak God's word into their hearts. We need to tell the gospel to them. We need to look in each other's faces and see, is there hurt in that heart? My friends, that's what the author tells us. We need one another. We need worship. We need this church. We need Trinity. We need all of these things because we are walking in the wilderness. We need to have soft hearts daily filling our hearts with God's word, repeating the gospel to ourselves, to one another. We need scripture to define who God is, not our circumstances. We need worship as Psalm 95 teaches. But here is the center with which we began. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Cling to him. Put your anchor down in him. You will stumble on your journey, but he did not. He faced every temptation that Satan brought his way without stumbling, and he used God's word to defeat him. 
he perfectly kept God's law. And when asked to drink the cup of God's wrath that was meant for us, he drank it to the dregs. He drank every drop of it. He went to the cross and he was struck with God's rod of judgment, not because of his sin, but because of ours. It has always been about him. That was God's plan. It's always about him. That's what's going to bring you through the wilderness. Don't put God on trial. God has already put his son there. He does not need to do it again. He will never do it again. Don't look at your circumstances and claim God doesn't care. He gave you his son. Don't expect the wilderness to be your place of rest. Don't expect it to be your paradise. It won't be. That's coming, but it's not today. Today is the day of faith. Today is the day that we look to Jesus to lead us through. We can't do it on our own. This isn't a passage that is telling us that we're going to fall away. It's telling us, look to whom you're looking. Who is it that you're trusting? Don't look to circumstances. Don't look to yourself. Are we meant to grow in loving him more? Yes, because the more we look to Jesus, the more we're going to want to know him. The more, the softer our hearts are going to be. The more we're going to know about God's ways, but we have to keep our eyes on him. And for those who are struggling and who are not looking at Jesus, we need to call him back. We need to show them who he is. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. Don't go back to anything else. You have what you were always meant to have. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the wilderness, Lord. We don't like to say that, but we do thank you for it because we know that it is in the wilderness that we're being prepared for a final rest in Jesus. And Father, during our wilderness, let us know that he's still our rest. It's just that he's our rest in trouble. Someday he's going to be our rest in glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these women who love you, want to know you. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.